Hello everyone, Matt here and welcome to Looking Back at Lost, where each week I look at another episode of ABC's Lost to see how that episode fits into the series as a whole. Today I'll be looking at episode 413, entitled There's No Place Like Home, Part 2. This is the 85th episode of the series, and there are only 36 to go. At this point, I will pause to share a question asked by Mighty Tim on Twitter. He asked, how is this week's ep going to be, part 2 and part 3 together, as that's how they were aired or separated? I told him two separate episodes were on home video, so it would be two separate weeks. His response... Uh, was that the Blu-ray of Season 4 has uh, uh, No Place Like Home Part 2 as one whole episode, so he didn't know where the split is. I'll say to all of you watching along at home, probably you've already watched ahead of time, but the uh, the cut between Episodes 2, uh, Parts 2 and 3 rather, are uh, when Ben says that he does not uh, regret having uh, attempted to kill Kimi, thereby killing everybody on the boat. Also mentioned that the decision to split these fin- these uh, finales up is uh, also done to, uh, in part, reflect the uh, you know the the number of 121 episodes of Lost. That's uh, that's reflective of that. I think, with the exception of the finale, I think the finale is counted as only one episode. I know I've looked it up before. Uh, perhaps it's two. I think that it's uh, it's over two hours long, but there might be. Uh, the end part one, and then the end part two, with the end part two being uh, being longer than the hour with commercials or 45 without. So anyhow, uh, there certainly will be more on this weird split of part two, part three, how it was aired, how it's been on home video, more on that in the trivia section. First, I wanted to mention an email from Charity, who said as follows, Hi, Matt. I've been listening to your podcast since March when I was nearly done watching the series on Netflix. I love Lost and I love your podcast. You do a great job of recapping the episodes and delving deeper into the themes and trends. And I like that you don't spend too much time on what I think is cutesy trivial stuff, like the numbers always showing up on hotel room doors or whatever. Things like that were fun to see during the episodes, but ultimately it's the larger themes, light versus dark, good versus evil, and the gray spaces in between, father issues, etc., that make Lost a show worth watching and revisiting. Thanks for giving me a taste of Lost each week. Best charity in Tampa, Florida. Well, thank you very much, Charity, for sending that email. And uh, I think you've kind of hit the nail on the head for what uh, what I try and do with the podcast. I'm, I'm not that interested in the cute stuff of... Uh, Oh, they just said, don't tell me what I can't do, or don't tell me what I can do, or, uh, you know, oh, they just made a little reference to, uh, oh, what was it, that last week's episode or two weeks ago where Sawyer, uh, Jack goes off into the jungle and Sawyer says, you know, I'm not going to let you die alone. I mean, that's cute. Certainly some of those things are noted, but 
There was one set of rules to watch the show, where you spend a ton of time poring over the blast door map, trying to figure out what it all means, and to figure out how you can glean uh, some sort of prediction as to the future of the show. If you could just understand the annotated version of the blast door map as was revealed in Entertainment Weekly, you know that's all fine. Let's you know, let's look back though. Was the blast door map that useful? Not really. It told us about a couple stations some of which we visited, others that we did not. Told us about uh, Cerebus vents. Okay, so there were these tunnels that the smoke monster went through sometimes. That's neat enough. That didn't fundamentally change the fact a few episodes ago when Ben called the monster, or did the monster call him. Uh, But, you know, when when Smokey comes on through and uh, attacks Kimi and his guys... The fact that we heard about Cerebus Vents, if you read the Blast Door map seasons previous, it doesn't really make that much of a difference. Uh, and indeed, the hope is to look at these uh, at these larger these larger themes, etc., as uh, Sweet Charity had mentioned. So, with that, let's get into uh, this episode proper and the summary, which is as follows: In flash forwards to late two thousand seven. Following those in Through the Looking Glass, Jack, Kate, and Walt all recount stories of being approached by Jeremy Bentham, the dead man in the coffin. On the island, Jack and Sawyer meet up with Hurley and Locke at the Orchid Station. Jack and Locke once more argue about the nature of the island. Locke implores him to lie about the island once he and the other survivors leave. At the helicopter, Kate, Saeed, and the others free Ben by ambushing and killing the mercenaries, except Kimi who feigns death. In return, the others allow Kate, Saeed, and the other survivors to leave the island on the helicopter. Ben returns to the Orchid, where he gets in a hidden elevator with Locke. Jack, Kate, Saeed, Sawyer, Hurley, and Frank Lapidus leave the island on the helicopter, but discover a fuel leak on board. In order to lighten the helicopter, Sawyer jumps out after whispering something in Kate's ear and kissing her. In the Orchid Station, Pierre Chang begins to discuss time travel involving negatively charged exotic matter when the VCR malfunctions and the tape rewinds itself. Shortly, Kimi arrives and tells Locke that if he, Kimi, dies, the C4 on the freighter will detonate due to a remote trigger linked to a heart rate monitor he is wearing. Regardless, Ben kills Kimi with no remorse or sympathy for those on the boat, in order to avenge his adopted daughter, Alex, whom Kimi executed. So with that, let's now get into my thoughts about the episode. Uh, Certainly quite the jam-packed episode, fast-paced, fun, uh, well-acted. And uh, anyhow, it opens with a quick recap of the previous events, complete with season three scenes of Jack at the funeral parlor. And we have to go back, Jack. Then the teaser act starts with, Kate immediately stopping after Jack said that uh, we have to go back. This, by the way, I love it when shows do this. Uh, this is something that was done frequently on uh, on Alias, obviously the previous J.J. Abrams show. Um, it's nice if that scene is going to continue, uh, let it continue. Oftentimes it's done with a cliffhanger at the end of an episode that you just carry through to the next. Uh, but here, <laughs> Lost continuing a scene that we have not uh, witnessed for, for a year. Uh, Anyhow, it's a very, very shocking moment, uh, the fact that this scene continues, jarring almost, and it is, of course, something that was also shot almost a year previous, and still it matches up. 
The scene also gives much to mull over, especially looking back. Jeremy Bentham is named for the first time, and references are made to not being able to trust him of all people. Obviously a reference to the shoddy leadership of one Mr. Locke. At least, you know, we can, we can understand that reference after the fact. Kate also affirms that she'll never go back, never say never, though as first presented, I, I doubt we could hardly know better. Flash forward over, we get a quick shot of Jack's bloody shirt, then Jack and Sawyer on the hunt for Ben's group, which they find easily in the form of Hurley taking a wee. Around this time, the show's editor credit is shown, amassing a four whopping editors. I'm sure I'll get into this uh, with the uh, the trivia for uh, for part three, but uh, the long and the short of it is they were in such a rush to get this show edited that normally it's one editor that has, I don't know, some astronomical time, like six or eight weeks. Instead, they used four editors to get it done, uh, in some cases, in a matter of uh, of a week or so. Anyhow, uh, Jack and uh, and Sawyer wander across Locke, himself wandering around the external Orchid Station. Uh, at this point, the story moves to Desmond, Michael, and Jin checking out that massive C4 bomb. Desmond succinctly explains that anything you do to touch it will likely make it go. Boom. Enough tension for you? Well, the show feels it is, where you move to the title card, then back to the Orchid. Locke is looking to move the island, whereas Jack is all set to berate him. After all, they've got that nice chopper and nice boat. To which Hurley reminds him that Ben surrendered an hour ago, and the bad guys are going to the chopper too. Which, of course, begs the question, why Ben? Tell me something, Ben. What is it that makes you so important, hmm? I'm curious. I'm curious as to why Mr. Widmore would pay me so much money just to come out here and capture you and bring you back alive. Charles Widmore tell you to kill my daughter? Hey! How'd he get the toolbox? Damn. Who gave you the toolbox, Frank? Whoa. Hey! Whoa, 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 you're good right there. It's wonderful to see Kimi, a man fundamentally in charge of most situations in his life, I'd imagine, here go head-to-head with Ben, uh, who is oddly silent. Of course, I think Ben is just sitting, waiting for an opening. And of course, that opening comes in the form of Kate, having arrived with news that Ben's people are chasing her. You can see Ben thinking, his eyes moving. He knows before Kate's little half-wink, and of course he knows well before the subsequent attack that help is on the way. It's just, it's it's Michael Emerson's wonderful acting where he's just able to project all that with his eyes. It's just absolutely fantastic. And indeed, what help it is that comes to save him. The guys with guns seem to get taken down by the dirty, camouflaged others that are only using bits of vine in their own hands. It's almost nice seeing them attack for the side of good. Well, mostly good, I suppose. Uh, With all but Kimi done for, Ben and Kate run off with Kimi in pursuit. 
Now, do you want to know that this is a finale, or at least part of the finale episode, when Saeed tackles Kimi? One heck of a great fight breaks out. Half wrestling match, half MMA event, half action movie. That's right. It's so good that it has three halves to it. It ends with wise Richard putting a few bullets in the back of Kimi. Not the last time that we'll see Kimi, of course, but we believe that's the case for now. The act ends with a be careful what you wish for type moment. Ben blandly asks Richard what the deal was, with the tone of it almost being in passing. The answer, Kate and Sawyer get to leave. Ben bequeaths them the chopper, and Kate asks if that's it. Ben, unimpressed, responds, that's it. The act ends sharply with a quick cut to black. That's it. The chopper gets them off the island to that awful fate of freedom that we've seen the Oceanic Six living through. After the break, we flash forward to Hurley, who's fiddling with a fruit snack, before a character returns in a very, very telling scene. Hey, Walt. Hey, Hurley. Getting big, dude. You know, when you came back, I was waiting for one of you to come see me, but nobody did. Sorry. Do you know who did come see me? Jeremy Bentham. I don't understand why you're all lying. everyone that didn't come back. Like my dad. Like your dad. Yeah. It is such a critical scene, pushing the mystery of Jeremy Bentham forward, bringing Walt's separation from the story into play. Perhaps if they had only brought him back sooner, who knows, maybe the island would have somehow been appeased. Also, there's foreshadowing of Walt's time in Santa Rosa, and of course, uh, his return to the island after the finale. It is a perfect time to have Walt return, albeit briefly, to the story. He is, of course, gigantic. You know, only uh, only so much has so much time has passed. Uh, this is just the end of season four. My goodness, uh, and you know, he he was taken at the end of season one, but boy, the. The, uh, the young man grew up so fast, and uh, it's just great to see him here, and it's a nice little in-between point uh, of sorts. I mean, I know he's, he shows up uh, at least one other time, but it's nice that he kind of is kept in the background of the story, referenced, shown uh, in Meet Kevin Johnson, uh, or, or, you know, here, older, etc., that he's just in the background of the story to really be able to return to things. Uh, in what will be the final episode of the podcast, and indeed the last uh, last bit of story from the series. Anyhow, with Flash Forward over, Hurley and Sawyer reconnect with a little info exchange. Thanks for coming back for me. How's Claire and the baby? Then Jack and Locke not only rehash, but help focus the plot. I'll tell you what. You stay here in your little greenhouse. 
But the rest of us are going home. But you're not supposed to go home. What am I supposed to do? Oh, I think I remember. What was it that you said on the way out to the hatch? That crashing here was our destiny. You know, Jack. You know that you're here for a reason. You know it. And if you leave this place, that knowledge is going to eat you alive from the inside out. Until you decide to come back. Goodbye, John. You're going to have to lie. Excuse me? If you have to go, then you have to lie about everything. Everything that happened since we got to the island. It's the only way to protect it. It's an island, John. No one needs to protect it. It's not an island. It's a place where miracles happen. And, and if, you, if you don't believe that, Jack, if you can't believe that, just wait till you see what I'm about to do. Here, too, we have a great bit of foreshadowing. The flash forwards showed us that Jeremy Bentham wanted them to come back, and now Locke is saying the same thing. It's also nice to see him being the one to plant the idea that the Oceanic Six need to lie. And it, of course, ends with foreshadowing for No Place Like Home Part 3 and the island move. But that, Ben arrives in a rather bored manner, opens the secret passage down below, and sends Jack on his way to the chopper. Now, finally, we see the Oceanic Six coming together, unquestionably. The excitement hides the little Ben line that Jack needs to be off the island within the hour. An implication, certainly after the fact anyway, that if he doesn't get off now, then the island will be in a different spot. With that, there's an act break, then we are dockside at the Katana, uh, or I suppose topside, not really dockside, because the Katana is not near a dock. We are topside of the Katana, where the sun, where sun is reassured that everything is okay, while Michael brings liquid nitrogen to cool the C4, uh, and promptly explains to us, I mean Jin and Desmond, that they will cool the battery for a little while. He foreshadows his own end at this point. If you see the red light, it's the last thing that you will ever see. Quite a bit of foreshadowing in this episode. I suppose it's to be expected, since number of storylines will come to an end uh, in this episode. Uh, with that, the story moves to Daniel returning on the Zodiac boat, with Juliet helping load more people into the next uh, trip to the freighter. There's a fun little moment of Miles eating peanuts and Rose giving him a hard time about it. Uh, I'd suggest, too, not to overuse the word foreshadowing, but it is somewhat suggestive that Miles is going to be here a while, That the, you know, given that they take the time for him to kind of uh, you know, start to start to interact with some of the other cast members. Anyhow, Miles is happy to stay on the island. Charlotte is ready to leave. And then just a little bit of season five starts to creep in. I'm surprised you want to leave. Sorry? It's just weird, you know, after all that time you spent trying to get back here. What do you mean, get back here? What do I mean? I love that they put it out there. This is a hint. 
And of course, you add to it that Miles uh, has rarely been wrong about things, you know, thus far anyway. Um, anyhow, with that, the story heads back to Ben and Locke descending in the red-lit elevator. We're told it's deep. It's deep and red. Are they descending into hell, perhaps? Obviously not literally. I doubt even figuratively, but it certainly feels like quite the descent. We'll put it that way. Uh, as Ben powers things up, there's some absolutely fantastic production design as the station looks vaguely like the Swan without being it being a retread. And what was the station for? Ben exudes a wonderful uh, kind of world weariness. He's here for the important tasks uh, while Locke tugs at his shirt tails and asks what it's all about. So what does Papa Ben do with the childlike Locke? Pop him in front of a TV to watch a video, of course. Hello, I'm Dr. Edgar Hallowax. This is the orientation film for Station 6 of the Dharma Initiative. As you've no doubt surmised, Station 6, or the Orchid, is not a botanical research unit. The unique properties of this island have created a kind of Casimir effect, allowing the Dharma Initiative to conduct unique experiments in both space and time. This is the vault, constructed adjacent to a pocket of what we believe to be negatively charged exotic matter. Great care must be taken to avoid leaving inorganic materials inside the chamber. The electromagnetic energy within the island can be highly volatile and unpredictable. Now, for your own safety and the safety of those around you, metallic objects must never be placed within the vault. In our first demonstration, we will attempt to shift the test subject 100 milliseconds ahead in four-dimensional space. For the briefest of the moments, the animal will seem to disappear. But in reality... As the tape starts to conveniently rewind, uh, we can reflect on this being a tidy little scene. Uh, ben is loading up the vault with all sorts of metal, just as Dr. Hallowax says that metal should never, ever go in there. The kicker... Locke asks if he was talking about what he was talking about. Ben's answer, yes, time-traveling bunnies, is, of course, played for a laugh, but it's our introduction to time travel, true time travel in the series. Perhaps at this point, it all starts to click. Ben in, in 2005, for example. That the next season will largely be spent in the past is a gem left for future episodes. The scene ends with the elevator making its way down again. Who's coming? Ben has an answer. He needs his gun. With that, an act break. Then Hurley, Sawyer, Kate, Saeed, and Jack are at the chopper with Lapidus. Uh, there's some happy returns, hugging, hellos, etc. Then Sawyer hacksaws Lapidus out of the cuffs. Giacchino's music plays the darker tones of the scene and a reminder of the genius that this episode not only reviewed We Have to Go Back, Jack, but continued the scene. It's an awful future to which they are headed. And it is, of course, the last time they'll be on the island at this time. 
until season six. With that, we hit an act break. Then Desmond, Jin, and Michael are fiddling with the bomb wires, punctuating the scene with the idea that if the bomb goes off, the ship will go, and all the people who they're trying to save need to be off the boat. The scene closes with a shot of Jin, underselling the idea that Sun and Aaron will need to be you know, uh, connecting with the Oceanic Six quite soon. With that, the story moves to the chopper, the happy, problem-free chopper, which is now losing lots of fuel. Jack explains frantically that the chopper must head to the boat as there's no fuel on the island. Then the question du jour, how is Sawyer with the Oceanic Six but not with them in L.A.? some whispers, whispers that set up answers and questions for season five, of course. Why are you telling me this? Then Sawyer kisses her and prepares to make the sacrifice and, of course, jumps. Just do it, Brad. Curiously, as the scene concludes, we're left with a shot of Kate looking very relieved. Why? I think that it's because she finally has had a man who loved her enough to sacrifice himself for her sake. And indeed, I'd argue that it's just that, a brief little character moment hearkening back to the deepest recesses of Kate's past. With that, we have an act break, then Charlotte and Daniel splitting up, presumably, it's an odd little scene with Daniel, him having the air of leaving for good, and his little bits of memory loss seeming to suggest something more. Obviously, there's uh, quite a bit of story ahead of us when it comes to Daniel. But the story right now moves to the Terminator Kimi walking out of the Orchid Elevator. Oh yeah, he had some blinky device on him, didn't he? But how did he survive being shot, we might wonder. You better aim for the head, Ben! Like your boyfriend, who shot me in the back, like a coward. This body armor's um, been known to take a bullet or two in its time. But before you take your shot, Ben, let me tell you about this. See that? I took out a bit of a, uh, a life insurance policy, Ben. It's a heart rate monitor. And it's connected to a radio transmitter. We call it a dead man's trigger, Ben. My heart stops beating. Sends a little signal to the 500 pounds of C4 that I've got hardwired out there on the freighter. That'd kill a lot of innocent people, Ben. 
I'm bluffing. You know, I remind you of uh, how your daughter looked as she bled out, face down in the grass. It's a sinister scene with seemingly no way out. Not only hasn't Kimi died, but it seems as though he can't. And for us, that's almost inconceivable. Again, wearing that hat as first-time viewers, if 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 Kimi can't die, then all is lost here. If he does, how can we have fan favorite Jin and searching for true love Desmond, you know, buy it back on the boat? Oh, and I guess there's Michael there too. Anyhow, despite these uh, impossible odds, what is it that Ben said earlier? He always has a plan, doesn't he? Who's that, Leo? My name is John Locke, and I have no conflict with you. And neither do the people on that boat. So, why don't you put your knife down? We can talk about this. Well, John Locke, never really been one for talk. You killed my daughter. It's a satisfying moment, just a moment, as Ben gets his revenge. But then... What did you do? You just killed everybody on that boat. So? It's a fantastic mini-ending, not meant to sum it all up, of course, as there still is one part to go, the source of next week's episode. With that, let's take a look at the uh, bits and pieces from Lostpedia for this episode. It notes, of course, that this episode was originally planned to air as a one-hour episode, making it just part two of the finale. The first draft of the script was 85 pages long, which was 30 pages too long. In order to tell the story that they wanted, Lindelof and Cuse asked the network if they could have an extra hour for the finale. Due to this change, the finale had to be moved back a week in order to make room in the schedule. Also, as for the information uh, alluded to earlier as to whether uh, this is a three-part episode or a two-hour part two, uh, it's only confused by the fact, says Lostpedia, that this episode was re-edited for the DVD release in regions two and four, that's outside the United States, and cut into two parts so that it could be viewed as two standalone episodes of Lost instead of being a two-episode-length finale. The scene where Ben stabs Kimi was moved to later in part two to end with Ben saying so, which of course is how it was presented here. Part three's teaser before the Lost title screen ends with Desmond telling the helicopter not to land. Curiously, the Region 1 DVD release keeps parts two and three as one full episode, the way they originally aired. Uh, however, Netflix and iTunes have the uh, the parts two and three as separate episodes. So who knows? Who knows? Last bit of trivia is that the inaudible whisper that Sawyer tells Kate appears to be, I have a daughter in Alabama. You need to find her. Tell her I'm sorry. Uh, there is, of course, the issue of Sawyer's daughter being in Albuquerque. And uh, therefore, it'd be safe to assume that that was what he said as uh, Alabama 
just simply would not be the case, simply would not work. So with that, I know it was a slightly shorter podcast this week. Um, I just, I go with what the episode gives me. Of course, it's a lot of action and much resolution and much theorizing to be discussed next week. So apologies for our time together has been a bit less, but say uh, lovey. Uh, if you'd like to share feedback, the best way to do it is to say hello to me on Twitter, where I'm Looking Back Lost. You can send an email to lookingbackatlost at gmail.com, or you can leave a comment on the webpage, lookingbackatlost.podbean.com. Last but not least, you can call the listener line, 732-707-1815. And with that, I will bid everybody adieu. Until next week, there's no place like home, part three. Take care, everybody, and bye-bye.